1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Joe McCormick, and Robert, I am ready to lather up. That's right. Uh, in this episode, we are going to be exploring an invention. Uh, we're getting into a little techno history here, but we are going to be considering soap. Uh, soap has been on everyone's mind a bit more these days, I think. Uh, this is actually a topic that was suggested to us uh, for our, our previous sideshow invention, which is now back uh, a part of Stuff to Blow Your Mind itself. Um, soap is something that is, I think, easy to take for granted. Uh, given normal situations, right? Soap is just the thing that you, uh, you know, speedily wash your hands with, uh, you know, add a little bit of a nice smell, take some of the grease or grit off uh, so you can move on to something else, perhaps give you a little bit of peace of mind before you do things like prepare food or put your contacts in. But lately it is, of course, has been stressed how essential it is via hand washing in the prevention of the spread of COVID-19. All right. So let's let's talk about soap. Soap is, of course, a human invention. But did we ever uh, get by without it? I mean, it's hard for us to imagine life without soap, especially now, because it aids us in the cleaning of our bodies. It also helps us uh, via you know detergents in the cleaning of our garments. We use uh, soaps to, to clean uh, uh, you know objects and surfaces as well. It helps maintain basic hygiene. It prevents the spread of disease and it can also impart a pleasing odor. You know, what's not to love about soap and how How on earth can we get by without it? Now, obviously, we can look to the animal world for plenty of examples, uh, but but a few common examples do tell us a lot. Birds, for instance, clean themselves with their beaks and they use water or dust to bathe themselves. Uh, Cats, dogs, and cows are frequent examples of animals that lick themselves to clean themselves. And uh, (laughs) let's consider a a few terms to put things in perspective as well. We're talking about grooming, which is a comfort behavior that is the, the practice of cleaning the body surface uh, including the cleaning and oiling of feathers with the bill or uh, of the hair with the tongue and there are a few broad categories here there's, first of all, auto-grooming. That is an animal's grooming of itself. And, you know, ultimately, that's what's going on when you take a shower in the morning or in the evening or whenever, or both, you know, go go wild. Uh, there's also uh grooming which is an animal's grooming of another for parental or social reasons.
1: Yeah, and uh, one thing that's very interesting is the... The array of social dynamics that seem to take place through grooming behaviors, like say uh, primate grooming behaviors, where primates will sometimes uh, pick pick little uh, nits and bits and bugs out of each mm-hmm. other's hair as a way to to manage and mediate social bonds within groups.
2: Yeah, it becomes a, a, a yeah part of the society uh, for for creatures like that and for creatures like us. So all of this amounts to a general physical removal of particles, scraped away, picked away, washed away, and there may be uh, bactericidal properties as well. Uh, you know, particularly you'll see some there's some you know, uh, studies about saliva. Um, and to what degree they may uh, uh, be able to kill bacteria. Uh, but this this basic removal uh, can deal with everything from sand and dirt to dead skin cells, loose hairs, loose feathers, and like you mentioned, actual exoparasites. And, and of course, in, in cleansing oneself, it's helpful to use nails and claws and beaks and all these uh, these various uh, uh, you know bio tools that we've already mentioned. But in dealing with, with humans, in dealing with Homo sapiens and some of Homo sapiens' closest kin, we, have, of course, have to get into tool use. Uh, we get into the, the, the techno history of the situation here. And one of the sources I was looking at for this episode was soaps from the Phoenicians to the 20th century, a historical review by Roth et al. It came out in 1996. They point out a few key examples from, quote, the pre-soap era. This is uh, an era you might think of as the squeegee era,
1: <laughs> yes. you know, where there we did have some tools. We we probably were interested in cleaning ourselves, but we didn't have soap yet. So what can you do? Maybe you can kind of squeegee your skin
2: with a, with a little bit of abrasive action. Yeah. And indeed, uh, Neolithic people uh, apparently used flint scrapers to clean themselves, a basic way to remove dirt, grime, dead skin cells. You know, why depend on just those those uh, I'm guessing horrid fingernails that you have uh, during the Neolithic period, uh, when you can also start using some, uh, some, some tools? you're using tools to scrape other things. You need a good scraping as well, so grab some flint and get in there. Now, I really hope that
1: they were not using the same uh, hand axes, bifaces, or pieces of flint to process animal carcasses and then to scrape their own skin clean. But I have to guess there probably was a bit of crossover yeah, it seems inevitable, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, but so the the use of a kind of uh, a bit of mechanical leverage, some, some scraping with a tool did not stop with Neolithic or Stone Age people. This actually did continue into classical
2: civilizations like the Romans did something similar. Yeah, before the age of plenty in the first century CE, the Greeks and Romans depended on, well, they had vapor baths. They had, you know, an, an extravagant ba- bath system for sure. But also they would scrub and scrape the skin with uh, a, stri- a strigil or skin scraper made of bone, ivory, or metal. And this is basically what it sounds like. You get the, you get the, the, the skin itself you, you know, uh, nice and moist uh, from a bath or perhaps via the application of an oil, and then you can start scraping away and remove that, uh, you know, that outer layer of grime, dead skin, etc., I guess some people still use something like this uh, to cleanse themselves. I mean, in terms of just dealing with our skin, I mean, I know, for, uh, for instance, that uh, just going to the YMCA, I'll hear some of the uh, the older uh, gentlemen in the locker room, uh, they would talk of ways that they would deal with uh, like the thickened calluses on their feet and s- some of the... Uh, sometimes bad advice they would give each other would involve essentially scraping away the skin, uh, generally with, uh, with Oof. tools and implements that were not designed for that purpose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it sounds like you've got a specific tool in
1: mind. Are they like using a, a food processor blade or what?
2: Um, well, one was definitely, there was a guy that was telling me what you need to do is you need to get yourself, um, a safety razor and then remove some of the safety features. And then you can just, you can, uh, you know, scrape away some skin. Uh, Which sounds like a bad idea, and I do not recommend anyone do that. Another person said, what you need to do is you need to get one of these, and he held up... uh, oh, well, what's the what do you call these? Uh, it's the it's for the the, the grating of, say, ginger uh, for culinary purposes. Uh, a microplane? Like, yes, a microplane. Uh, so he held up oh, a microplane God. and no. uh, he says you can get one of these at Bed Bath and Beyond. It works great. Uh, again, I would not recommend using <laughs> that on your body. I would recommend getting uh, a, a, a sanding or <laughs> scrubbing implement that is designed for use on the skin and use on the feet. What you do is you get a stick blender and (laughs) oh, man. Uh, But that's not to say that that uh, other folks weren't engaging in the use of essentially chemical approaches to uh, the cleaning of the skin. The ancient Egyptians made use of soda to clean their skin uh, as well as to treat diseases of the skin. Okay so soda is interesting here because that suggests
1: we're, we're getting a little bit closer to soap like territories uh, this will make more sense when we explain soap in a bit but but soda of course is an alkali it's a it's a base and in certain combinations, in the presence of fats and
2: water, this can actually have a lathering soap-like effect. Yeah. So so this is a nice ancient example. Uh, we'll get into some more in a bit. But, uh, oh, and then the, another example that Roth et al. point, uh, point out, 5th century BCE, during this time period, Herodotus wrote of the priest physicians of the Temple of Amun at uh, Karnak in Egypt during the reign of um, Ramesses. This would have been 1113 uh, uh, through ten eighty five BCE, and Herodotus stated that they would quote bathe in cold water twice a day and twice a night and cleansed their mouths with natron. Now natron Mm. was a mixture of sodium bicarbonate and sodium carbonate. That's what you call mummy mouth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my favorite books on the, the history of hygiene uh, is a book titled Clean by Virginia Smith. And in that, uh, she points out that uh, that Natron was dissolved in water to clean the body, to clean clothes, furniture, and sometimes it could be ignited with incense as well. Priest would chew it and drink it as a, as a cleansing as well. So it wasn't just used in the creation of mummies. It was like, in a way,
1: this kind of uh, this kind of posh, high status chemical for for all the, you know, the, all your hygiene needs. In a way, mm-hmm. it can be like you've got to have that mummy mouth.
2: Yeah. Uh, now, I think one of the, the the facts that we're we're getting into here, with especially with the with the natron example, is that we are dealing with medicine. We are dealing with medicinal uses, and that's one of the amazing things is when you start looking at some of the early history. Of what we think of as soap you're often dealing more specifically with with uh, medical practices and uh, sort of the magic of early medicine as opposed to just sort of the like we don't think about soap as medicine we don't think about hygiene as medicine but it is i mean it is preventative medicine uh, uh, uh you know you know quite literally yeah totally now, uh, other uh, BCE treatments included uh, using olive oil on the skin. I mentioned that already as something that you know it might apply before scraping. Uh, clay and plant ashes as well. During the biblical period, we see a form of soap made from plant derivatives, uh, generally from salty regions where the plants gathered potash and soda. And the Bible actually mentions uh, the washing materials bore, bore borit, and uh, shilig. Uh, Akkadian, Syrian, and Arabic languages all include words, specific words for soap producing plants. Plants that would be, you know, would definitely become important later on, uh, if not then in the creation of these uh, soap like elements. And plant ash and clay were also widely used in uh, the cultures of India, Peru, Chile, and Angola. Well, maybe this is a good place to stop and explain how soap actually works, but should we take a break first? We should. We'll be right back. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
1: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? All right, we're back. Uh, so, it's time to talk about how soap actually gets things clean. So, in a lot of cases, of course, we all know that simply washing with water can be very effective. If you don't have soap, you might as well wash your hands with water because that gets a lot of stuff off. Maybe not everything, but a lot, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is it, – again, it's, it's often poorly understood by the people who use it, but it's, it's highly effective. And
1: actually, there was a very interesting passage about uh, what I'm about to talk about in the book Until the End of Time by Brian Green, a recent guest on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. The passage highlights the fact that water is good for washing things much for the same reason that it is the basis for life on Earth. Hmm. And if, if that doesn't make any sense, stick with me for a second here. So Green is talking about the chemical properties of water. He's talking about the fact that water is a polar molecule. So you've got uh, a one atom of oxygen with two atoms of hydrogen. They're bonded together together. And in this molecule, there is a net negative charge at one end, the end where the oxygen atom is, and then there's a net positive charge at the other ends where uh, where the two hydrogen atoms are. And this difference in electrical charge across the length of the water molecule is essential to its function in the world of biochemistry. It's what makes water the molecule of life in a universe of death. And so th- this distribution of electrical charge across the length of the molecule means that Water can dissolve almost anything, not anything, but almost anything. The oxygen end will bind to almost anything that has even a slight positive charge. And the hydrogen tips at the other end will bind to almost anything that has even a slight negative charge. And Green writes that, quote, In tandem, the two ends of a water molecule act like charged claws that pull apart almost anything that's submerged for a sufficient time.
2: Uh, so if you are if you're like a hardcore soaker when it comes to uh cleaning the dishes uh this is this is uh this is uh, um, uh, ammunition for your defense against the scrubbers oh
1: of course yeah i mean just sitting something in water yeah it, it will tend to just pull things out and it's funny because water is is the, the fluid of life. We, we think of it as not something that's, uh, you know, that rips everything apart mm-hmm. <laughs> at the yeah. molecular level. We think of it as this, you know, this, this cleansing, healing kind of liquid, which of course it is to us. We need it to live, but chemically what it does and the reason why it's so useful to our bodies is that it has this power to dissolve. And so in dissolving things, uh, Green gives the example of table salt, a very common example. Uh, Table salt is known chemically as sodium chloride. Sodium chloride is a molecule that's made from one atom of sodium and one atom of chlorine. And when you drop crystals of table salt into water, the water molecules immediately start ripping them apart and dissolving them. So the oxygen in the H2O snags the positively charged sodium ions, and the hydrogen tips of the H2O molecule grab the negatively charged chlorine. Ions, Uh, But it's not just table salt. Water works this way for a huge number of chemicals and substances, and it's the reason water is good for washing things. Substances previously stuck to the outside of your skin or to the uh, outside of a dish or a pan are grabbed and dissolved by the water and carried away when the water runs off of you or off of the dish onto the ground downstream in a river or down the drain. And here's where things get really interesting. Uh, Here, I I just want to quote directly from Brian Greene's book, Until the End of Time. Quote, Well beyond its utility in personal hygiene, water's capacity to grab hold of and ingest substances is indispensable to life. Cell interiors are miniature chemistry labs whose workings require the rapid movement of a vast collection of ingredients, nutrients in, waste out, commingling of chemicals to synthesize substances required for cellular function, and so on. Water makes this possible. Water, constituting some 70% of a cell's mass, is life's ferrying fluid. Nobel laureate Albert zent Georgi summarized it eloquently, quote, Water is life's matter and matrix, mother and medium. There is no life without water. Life could leave the ocean when it learned to grow a skin, a bag in which to take the water with it. We are still living in water, having the water now inside.
2: Oh, wow. That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Sloshy water bag creatures that we are. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. We're bladders of life waddling around in the desert above. Yeah. Uh, uh, But so this is amazing. It's basically the same reason that water is good for washing your hands and the reason that astrobiologists are looking for signs of water on Mars. But while water is an amazing solvent and good for washing all kinds of stuff off your hands, there are some cases where its hygiene powers fall short. You, of course, know about this if you ever tried to use water alone to wash an oily, greasy substance off your hands mm-hmm. or off of a dish in the kitchen. So, so you've got a frying pans covered in, you know— residue of butter or something, and you try to run tap water over it to wash it off, does it work? Of course not, right? Like the water will maybe dislodge little bits of the butter residue, but mostly the oil on the surface of the pan will continue to stick, and the water will kind of rush over top it, or at best it will sort of push waves of the oil around through force. Now, I do use that as an example because I know everybody has done it. But uh, if you remember from our Fatbergs episode, please do not wash oil and grease down the drain, lest you begin to make a soap dragon down <laughs> in the sewers below us. Uh, but oh, oh, here's another example I'm sure everybody will be able to, to identify with. Robert, have you ever put lotion on your hands, like a sort of oil-based or kind of greasy lotion, and then you need to wash your hands? You go and wash your hands with just water without using soap. What What happens there?
2: Oh, you just uh, you get with these these slippery hands. It's like uh, now it's like lotion plus one, <laughs> right? Exactly. The lotion does
1: not get washed off. You have to use soap in order to get lotion grease off of your hands, and your hands will stay greasy no matter how much water you run over them, right? Yeah,
2: like yeah. I mean, obviously there's you know a certain amount of physical removal is possible. Generally, what yeah. I do is like I, I wash it off my hands real quick, and then I realize, oh I had lotion on, and now I kind of have to use like a hand towel to to physically remove some of the lotion uh, water mixture.
1: Right. Uh, so water by itself fails at washing away lipids. Lipids are a class of substances, including oils, fats, waxes, and steroids. And this is because simply oil and water do not mix easily, which is in turn due to the chemical properties of the two substances. So we were talking about how water is a polar molecule. It's got different electric charges at each end. And because of these different electric charges at each end of the water molecule, water links up with itself very easily through a series of connections called hydrogen bonds. So you can kind of think of the analogy of Legos, right? The top of one block just very easily snaps onto the bottom of the next. Now, oils, on the other hand, are made up of nonpolar molecules, so they do not easily break through these bonds and link up with water molecules to form new compounds or dissolve into the water. Uh, So, say say you take a jar and you put some oil and some water in the jar together and then you shake it up really hard – if if you shake the jar like that, droplets of oil will be dispersed by force throughout the water. Uh, but these molecules of oil will after so first they will disrupt the hydrogen bonds between the water molecules. They'll get kind of dispersed throughout. But they won't be able to form bonds with the water themselves. And instead, the disrupted water molecules, uh, I was reading about this, they they form a kind of molecular cage around the oil molecules. Uh, And this cage is this kind of almost crystalline type structure known as a clathrate. And this cage actually represents a temporary decrease in the entropy of the water. So by forming these orderly structures around these droplets of oil suspended in the water, you are decreasing entropy. And we know that the universe does not tolerate decreases in entropy forever. The universe always wants to increase the entropy again. So gradually, the mixed mass of water and oil manages to increase its entropy by spontaneously bumping around and rearranging until the oil molecules join up with one another into a solid mass and separate from the water to float on its surface. Uh, And of course, the reason that oil floats on top of water when it's separated is that oil is less dense than water. Uh, But for hygiene purposes, I guess all you have to remember is the short version that oil doesn't naturally dissolve in water like so many other substances do. And this is why water alone is not very good at dissolving and washing away oil or fat-based substances. And this, of course, is where soap comes in. Here's where we all know from experience you you can't get the lotion off your hands or the grease off your hands with water alone. But if you use some
2: soap, it comes right off. Another example that comes to mind here is, is of course, with our hair. Uh, I think if you've ever experimented with just rigorously shampooing versus going no poo, as they say it, uh, as as they call it, (laughs) um, that you can definitely observe this in action. Uh, So I feel the oils in your hair. Yeah. yeah, Like like I will generally go no shampoo for um, for like a few weeks at a time. And i will my my hair doesn't and it varies from person to person, you know depending on you know your particular hair and you uh, know your particular um oil and how it builds up. but with my own hair like a little bit of oil will build up and my hair will will look tolerable and um, you know i won't have to do much with it but then eventually i'll come to a point where I start feeling a little oily and therefore I bust out the shampoo, and when I do. All the oil is gone. And now and then I just look like um, like a troll doll, you know, <laughs> because then now there's no oil in my hair at all. And it's just this poofy uh, uh, blonde mess. But I bring this up as just an example of, uh, you know, this is a way to observe that water, even a lengthy shower, a lengthy blast of of hot, steamy water is not going to get that oil out of your hair, Um, uh, even if it's just day after day, twice a day even, uh, not until you add that magical soap. Right. Yeah. The the,
1: the oil just does not come away in the water. So soap is made by, uh, classically, it's made by combining a fatty acid such as an oil or an animal fat. You know, you can use like a uh, animal tallow or something uh, with an alkali, such as you would naturally find, say, in the ashes from a wood fire or today in a strong synthesized base like a lye. Uh, so at the molecular level... Soap is a pin shaped molecule that plays well with both water and lipids. Its tail is hydrophobic, meaning it doesn't like water. It avoids water molecules and it forms a bond with fats and oils. Meanwhile, its head is hydrophilic, meaning it likes water. It bonds with water easily and it becomes suspended in a solution of water and gets washed away when the water is rinsed off. Now, often what happens after a good lathering is that soap molecules will form a kind of bubble structure called a micelle around an oily contaminant with their hydrophobic tails pointing inward and and snagging onto the trapped particle and their hydrophilic heads pointing outward and being carried around by the water. So you can imagine each soap molecule as a kind of uh, a combination grasping claw at one end and parachute on the other end. One end grabs hold of the contaminant and the other end catches the fluid current and is easily carried away. But I should add that uh, the hygienic properties of soap don't end there, just at at the ability to uh, latch onto these lipid molecules and carry them away in the flow of water. Uh, In addition to making it easy to wash lipid-based dirt off of surfaces like your hands, soap is also directly lethal to many kinds of germs, including many kinds of viruses and bacteria. A lot of viruses and bacteria, including the novel coronavirus responsible for COVID-19, they're, protected by an outer layer that can be disrupted by soap. The fat loving ends of soap molecules kind of jam themselves into the lipid bilayer on the outside of the virus. I've seen it uh, compared by some experts to like little chemical crowbars just stabbing into the lipid outer membrane of the uh, of the virus and breaking that outer membrane up. And essentially what this does is it disembowels the virus, so its gut Spill out all over the place, and then they get washed away harmlessly in my cells whenever you rinse your hands. So, as an added benefit, the soap not only makes it much easier to get these uh, these sticky little germs off of your hands, it also just kills lots of germs. Not every germ is is killed by soap, but lots are, including the coronavirus.
2: Yeah, I think it was maybe it was the Roth uh, article that I referred to earlier. The authors pointed out that, you know, we have this this, this, uh, you know, this safe, mundane, this tame feeling about our soap. Soap is gentle. Uh, But for most uh, most organisms that we're dealing with, soap is a destroyer. It is just a a a brutal uh, and destructive weapon.
1: Well, yeah, you don't want to have your, your lipids dissolved. And hey, you know what? You can actually start to feel a bit of this yourself. Uh if you say if you have washed your hands too much, if you've been like cooking all day or something and you're repeatedly having to wash your hands over and over when you go in between tasks, you mm-hmm. may start to notice uh with, with really frequent hand washing that the cumulative effects of soap on your skin do become abrasive, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. If you've, say, helped your husband kill a king or something to that effect and you're washing your hands a lot, yeah, you'll notice that uh, oh, this is starting to to irritate uh, the outer layer of my body. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of what's going on there is that
1: is that uh, natural lipids in your skin, oils that are a healthy part of what your skin normally does to protect itself, are removed also when you wash your hands like that. Uh, and if you just keep removing all that stuff, it can kind of dry your skin out and irritate it. Uh, but I do want to say one more thing uh, about hand washing with soap, which is that I, I looked into this uh, the question of time, because we've all been told a bunch of times now you know, you need to wash your hands with soap uh, for at least 20 seconds, mm-hmm. right? And maybe a lot of people think, ah, no way well, you actually need to do it for 20 whole seconds, right? I mean, you just told me that that soap uh, soap can be lethal to to lots of germs. So basically, if you get soap all over your hands, you're good, right? You just get the soap on there and then you rinse it off and then you should be fine. That, that is not the case. It really does appear that time is a factor in allowing soap to do its work. Uh, I was looking at a couple of studies that seem to be in agreement that longer really is better. And the difference between 20 seconds of soapy washing and five seconds of soapy washing is pretty
2: huge. Uh, I love how, especially early on, to really get this message across, uh, there were all these different versions of, hey, you can remember how long 20 seconds is by singing this song or this chorus from this song. Oh, my God. So <laughs> many articles like this. Yeah. Which <laughs> it's like, is it that hard to know how long 20 seconds is? I, don't <laughs> I know. That was my, my, my initial thought. was like, I don't really need to sing the happy birthday song to know how long 20 seconds is. I can just count to 20. But then I realized, well, no, this is, this is as much about getting the message out and making the message more fun uh, as anything and if it helps in that regard then yeah let's let's keep uh, reminding everybody which songs match up with 20 seconds
1: i i like the way of doing it is like expressing it in terms of the units of ronnie cox's monologue at the end of total recall how many <laughs> ronnie cox monologues do you need to do
2: Home in time for cornflakes. Is it a twenty second monologue or
1: No 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 I I don't know it actually, but (laughs) I I should time it out and then you can know like okay, I need to do it one and a half times or I just I need to go two thirds of the way through. I haven't done the math myself. But some some enterprising listener get on that.
2: I bet Connery's uh, monologue from Highlander 2 is about 20 seconds. Uh, oh, okay.
1: Most people live a full measure of life, but most people just watch it slowly drip away. But if you can summon it all up at one time in one place, you can accomplish something
2: glorious. What was that? Maybe was that 12, 15? Yeah, better do it twice just to be on the same side. <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, let's take another break. But when we come back, we will dive back into the history of soap and feel around in the darkness of history for its inventor. Today's episode is brought
1: to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love All right, we're back. All right, so we're trying to discuss now the question of who invented soap. And this is not going to be one of those cases where it was Jonathan Soap or Elizabeth Soap uh, working in their their home laboratory. Uh, We don't know the actual inventor of soap, but we have some very interesting clues at a more sort of civilizational or cultural level about when soap entered the, the history of
2: humanity. Yes now I love that you've brought up the idea like the, the handy and and just too good to be true idea of William soap having invented soap or Edith soap <laughs> having invented soap because the first example I want to talk about here is kind of a version of that it is it does not seem to be a true account of the history of soap it is it is too it is too perfect. Uh, and, uh, but it's a story, origin story that is often repeated on, say, websites about soap. Like if there's a soap mm. company and they have an about page, they if might want to throw this soap up. facts. <laughs> yeah, you might run across this one. And that is that soap originates uh, on the mountain of Sapo. Okay, tell me about Mount Sapo. Okay, that's, that's Sapo, S-A-P-O. You know, it sounds like soap. We're already basically there. It's the same letters rearranged. So the story here, and again, you may have heard it, is that soap making began 3,000 years ago on Mount Sapo near Rome. The idea is that animal sacrifices were made to the gods there, and streams of melted fat and ashes dribbled and dripped from the altar. And this mixture made its way down into the uh, to the clay ground beneath. And here, washerwomen learned that the resulting substance, animal fat, ash, and some clay, it resulted in uh, something that could be used in the cleaning of garments.
1: Uh, this sounds like... It's sort of like one of those like evolution explanation narratives that people sometimes come up with that's not based on any evidence at all but it's just like you know one time there was a monkey and it and you know it needed mm-hmm. a rock to do this and so this is what happened and stories like this are fun to come up with because you can try to imagine what's plausible though I think we can interrogate the plausibility of this one uh, based on things we actually know about Roman sacrifices and stuff uh, but but you can try to come up with a, a story about what's plausible even if you don't have direct evidence for it. But coming up with a plausible story, as we know, does not mean that you've discovered where something actually came from. And in this
2: case, we pretty much know this story is wrong. Right, yeah, despite the fact that it's handy and it's it's clean, uh, basically a, a slice of false uh, uh, etymology here. But I guess the basically, yeah, when you start looking at the details of it, yes, this is the sort of thing that could have happened. Yeah, this story, as we've related it, sounds plausible, but first of all, there's no mention of it in classical mythology. And it's also been pointed out that the manner of animal sacrifice that was practiced by the Romans would not have created vast amounts of soap. Um, And I believe a lot of this had to do with just like how much of the meat was actually, like how much of the the, the animal was actually burnt and how much of it was uh, sort of taken apart for other uses. Right, so the chemical reasoning here would be that you've
1: got animal sacrifices, animal bodies being burned, and there's a lot of fat On them, and the fat is just rendering out as the animal is being burned and it's pouring off into this area where there's also ash in the in the pit from the fire where the animal's being burned. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, soap is made generally from a combination of lipids like animal fats and a base like ashes. Ashes can work for that. So you combine fats and ashes and 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 water, and then you can basically have something like a, a crude or rudimentary soap. So you can imagine something something like this happening but w- one criticism I was looking at was that uh, apparently in Roman animal sacrifices you know they would take off most of the usable fat it was yeah. like it was like if
2: you could if you could do something with the fat they weren't going to burn that on the altar yeah they were they were too practical for that and uh, yeah, basically, this is a, an origin story, a proposed origin story for soap that would say that soap is essentially a byproduct. Uh, and I guess mm-hmm. that, that, like, basically, you would need enough of that byproduct to be produced for people to realize that it had some sort of a useful property to it. Um, also, and, did we mention that there is no Mount Sappo? Oh, that yeah, that, that's, that's, not that's a another place. big one. Yeah, <laughs> there's no there's no Mount Sappo. So we, we can't even identify it on, on a map or again, there's no writings about it in the ancient traditions. So it seems that there's not much evidence to really back this up. It seems to be an altogether invented origin story, uh, uh, perhaps even a, a straight up hoax. There's another reason, though,
1: I think that's a very good argument that this is not actually the origin of soap, which is that we've got literary references to soap that we'll get to in just a little bit that are actually older than
2: this story alleges for the for the creation of soap. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's going to be one of the key uh, factors here. Now... I do have to say it's, it's certainly possible in, in within, like generally within the history of um, of humanity, that things get invented and reinvented, that the basic chemical properties in one, like medicinal concoction in one culture, uh, you know, that it gets reinvented somewhere else, you know, accidentally or with some tinkering in another culture. So that sort of thing is still possible. And I guess we have to keep that in mind. But in terms of saying, where did it come from? When was the first soap born to us? It definitely was not born on this Mount Sapo three thousand years ago. Uh, stuff that we can pretty accurately say is soap uh, predates it by quite a bit. Okay, I got a question. Yes, we love to
1: hear from Pliny on ancient substances. Does Pliny the Elder write at all of soap?
2: Oh, he certainly does. Yeah, you, you know, you know, Pliny's going to talk about soap. Uh, if it, if it, it is it all around. Now he does not mention Mount Sapo, which I think is another, uh, you know key fact to keep in mind and certainly adds to our our heap of evidence against the idea of that being an accurate story at all. Uh, But he does mention the word sapo as something the Gauls used in their hair. Hmm. And indeed, there is uh, another story that you sometimes come across, and that's the idea that uh, that uh, that you had a man in Gaul discovering the properties of this sapo when his hair dressing of goat oil and beech tree ash got soaked in a rainstorm and formed a nice frothy lather. Hmm. Now that that too, I don't know. That may be some, an example that's partially invented, just because it sounds it's fun, right? It's like, oh, by accident, my hair treatment has turned into soap. <laughs> but, but soap does seem to come from either the Gaul world, Sapo, or from the Germanic, Saipa, uh, based on the sources I was looking at. Um, mm-hmm. There are a couple of authors, uh, Konkel and Rasmussen, and I'm going to cite their full article um, just in a little bit here, uh, they mention that this soap in particular was probably tinged with plants to dye hair. And this was then imported to Rome because Roman women really coveted what they described as red gold coloration of the hair. So we're imagining some sort of soap-like hair treatment that, uh, that is used to impart dye to human hair. And then, yeah, it becomes uh, uh, possible that people realize, oh, this actually can be used for cleaning as well. Not to say this was the invention of soap, but this could be an example, uh, you, could, you could think of this as an example of the sort of the reinvention of soap or uh, a particular substance becoming popular and it has soap-like properties that are then exploited. Additionally, uh, the Greek uh, physician Galen, who lived uh, 129 through either 199 or 216 CE, uh, wrote of soap as well, saying it worked as a better detergent than soda and that it was made from fat mixed with lye and quick lime. And he added that the best soap is Germanic because it is <laughs> creamy and pure, but gall soap, second best. Okay. Here's a quote from Galen, quote, all types of soap can severely loosen and remove all filth from the body and from clothing. It can also dry things out in the same manner as soda or foam of soda and is put in caustics. But I should add, it is not entirely clear that Galen actually wrote this. As it could have been. uh, We could have actually gotten this quote via pseudo uh, Galenic medieval handbooks. So Ah, uh, so, again, potentially more misinformation about where soap comes from. There's something about soap. There's something about our need to explain the origin of such an, an everyday substance and explain it with some sort of a novel, fun little story
1: yeah I wonder what's uh what is held in common by the types of inventions where you know there are tons of inventions that we just don't know where they came from, and some of these get all these like uh these these false origin stories and others don't what what are the ones that get the false origin stories have in common? Are they just the ones that maybe children are most likely to wonder about and ask about?
2: Yeah, or I was thinking perhaps they're sort of sidebars, like soap is so important. And yet at the same time, it's easy to imagine if one were writing like, you know, people like Pliny did, if they were just writing about, you know, the general history and state of the world, if just writing about everything, you might be tempted to just sort of speed through the soap section and be like, Uh yeah, it sounds like it came from some uh, some Gallic uh, hair treatments, something to that effect. <laughs> But uh, but I don't know, uh, you know, uh, perhaps uh, more has been uh, written and said on this uh, this aspect of, uh, of of human curiosity. But whether or not that was actually Gallen that uh, that we quoted there, other Greek writers of the time did write about soap um, and we, we see this with uh, with Roman writers as well. Uh, Pliny writes that soap is made from the ashes of beech trees and goat fat, and that there are two types, thick and liquid, both kinds used in uh, by, by uh, Germanic cultures. Pliny stated that the Phoenicians discovered soap making in, uh, he gave the, the, the rough date of 600 BCE. But when we actually look for the earliest evidence of uh, an actual soap-like material, it certainly takes us back further than that. Okay, let's hear about it. So uh, basically, we can go back and we can look at Sumerian clay tablets that uh, date back to the third millennium BCE in the the Hittite capital of Boggisgoy. And this is cited both in that paper by Roth et al. that I already mentioned, as well as this paper by Konkel and Rasmussen uh, titled An Ancient Cleaner, Soap Production and Use in Antiquity. This was published in Chemical Technology in Antiquity in 2015.
1: All right, so what does this Sumerian clay tablet say? How, how do we know
2: that it's talking about soap? It says, "...with water I bathed myself, with soda I cleansed myself, with soda from a shiny basin I purified myself, with pure oil from the basin I beautified myself, with the dress of heavenly kingship I clothed myself."
1: Ah, so you're getting all the elements of soap there, right? You're getting water, you're getting the alkali and soda, and you're getting the oil when it says oil. So if you combine those things together, you can get a rudimentary form of soap.
2: Yeah, and uh, and this is from a Sumerian clay cylinder found during the excavation of the ancient city of Babylon from the Ur dynasty. Uh, So it it is essentially sounds like a soap making process. Now, there's also a roughly 2500 BCE text concerning the washing of wool. uh, But according to Konkel and Rasmussen, uh, quote, details concerning the identity and contents of these tablets have not been reported. Uh, Like in all of this, I guess, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with the fact that the history of soap is difficult to uncover. And this is something that's worth keeping in mind here. We're dealing about finding written accounts of the physical soap. Right, because you can't find fossil soap. Right. Yeah. The authors here point out that, that first of all, ancient soap is difficult to study because it is organic and does not leave behind direct archaeological evidence. In addition, organic residues can simply undergo uh, saponification and become soap or soap like without any human chemistry actually interfering. So instead, the best we can hope for is a written record of it, especially in the form of a recipe. And in that, we deal with all the normal problems of looking at the historical record to understand human history uh, because. It's a question of what was actually recorded, and then what was recorded in a way that, that could survive, and then what actually did survive. Uh, you know, the, the point about
1: natural saponification happening, this ties into something we've talked about on the podcast a couple of times, I believe, uh, such as like the soap corpses, one mm-hmm. very famous example is uh, known as the soap lady uh, that's uh, housed at the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia uh, which is what happens when people are buried in soil with a certain kind of soil chemistry and uh, and the lipids the fat layers around the outside of their body react with the uh, the chemicals in the soil to form a kind of entombment or encasement of soap around the body as it decomposes
2: yeah so that's yeah that's an example there like nobody was making soap on purpose there, but sometimes soap happens.
1: Uh, Likewise, nobody's, nobody's trying to make soap in the sewers with uh, (laughs) (laughs) the, that's right,
2: with the soap dragons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because yeah, you could imagine if, potentially someone looking back and they were like, well, they created this, the aliens come and they're like, they created this enormous system underground and its sole purpose seemed to be the, the construction of massive pieces of (laughs) soap.
1: (laughs) I mean, I guess that stuff isn't technically soap. I mean, it has soap-like qualities, but it, it, Yeah. Uh, or I don't know. Is it technically soap? I don't know. Actually, n- remember the answer to that question. It 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 is soap-like in some ways, at least.
2: Mm. Now, Konkul and Rasmussen, uh, they, they, they do point to this, this third dynasty of Ur that's a 2200 B.C. account as being, uh, quote, a detailed economic account of cloth manufacture. And this is what includes a recipe for an impure liquid soap made from oil and potash. And this is what is generally and currently considered to be the oldest verified record of soap making. Now, they point out that that soap is generally mentioned in connection with medical writings in Mesopotamian uh, cultures, uh, centering in on the diagnosis and prognosis of illnesses and the creation of herbal remedies that usually consist of a pharmacological ointment containing oil, plant matter and various other substances. So they also point to a Sumerian uh, pharmacological tablet from 2200 BC from Nippur uh, that is seemingly the oldest medical record of soap, but it's also kind of deconstructed soap uh, because the uh, quote unquote, ailing organ is washed with a special solution, then rubbed with oil and then covered with plant ash. So it's kind of like deconstructed. soap. wait, 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 what's the ailing organ? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was I was wondering about that, too. It brought some rather um, specific ideas to mind. Uh, Apparently, there's some uncertainty there, but the authors later in the article speculate that we're talking about hands and feet. So uh, Mm. organ used very loosely here.
1: Uh, it still makes me wonder. I mean, like, I know in some ancient uh, documents, like in some books of the Hebrew Bible, I believe scholars speculate that references to the feet are often
2: euphemistic references to the genitals. Yeah, well, and ultimately, hey, the genitals need washing too. And genitals also suffer uh, ailments, both of the skin uh, and other varieties. So, I mean, it's you know we might snicker at the idea of um you know old genitals ailing genitals being washed with a, a you know a medical semi magical solution in ancient uh, Sum- sumeria but i mean that's part of it you know in the same way that we often think of uh, intestinal disruptions, you know, and, um, you know, diarrhea and the like, there's there's kind of a a humor to those those ailments, at least when we're not suffering them ourselves or when they're not too severe. But you look at, say, uh, you know, Ayurvedic medicine, you look at any medical, uh, you know, old medical practice, and there's a lot of attention given to digestive problems. Uh, I mean, that's just that's part of being human. And that's part of our quest to to treat the ailments of humanity. Mm hmm.
1: Speaking of diarrhea, while soap is, uh, is great for washing the outside of your body, do not ingest it.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, we, we, we were reminding my son of this several months ago, maybe half a year ago now. And at the same time, he was, as he is now, super into Harry Potter. So he's into potion making. So when we mm-hmm. told him about this, he took this potion bottle that he plays with, with, the, with the bat, in the bathtub, and he filled it like mostly with soap. And then he labeled it the diarrhea potion. <laughs> As one of the worst potions
1: in Snape's class, yes. I com- I completely flunked the diarrhea potion <laughs> portion of the Snape semester.
2: The, the diarrhea potion is still uh, in the bathroom. Um, maybe I should take a picture of it and share it with uh, with people on the stuff to blow your mind discussion module on Facebook because uh, uh, yeah, it exists and you know what, it probably works. Probably works. I believe in magic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So back to Konkul and Rasmussen here. Uh, they, they point to a few other examples. The, the paper is is really good. It's worth looking at. Uh, you know, looking at say some. There's a, for instance, a seventh century text of a private Acadian citizen uh, that's describing using uh, tamarisk, date palm, pine cone, and some uh, unidentified plant that is referred to as uh, mastical. The quote in question. May the tamarisk, uh, whereof the tops grow high, cleanse me. May the date palm, which faces every wind, free me. May the masticol plant, which fills the earth, clean me. May the pine cone, which is full of seed corns, free me. I carry a container with an aqueous solution of masticol plant to the gods of the heavens. As I would bring forth to you for purification, so will you cleanse me." So another kind of magical, uh, um, uh, you know, intonation of the of the the, the, the substance that has been prepared. Okay. Uh, so, w- what do the authors though make of the significance of this?
1: Like, is why would this be a soap here?
2: Okay, so they say, quote, the description of cleansing agents is quite interesting in that it contains ingredients that form the two components of soap. The tamarisk, a genus of uh, a group of saline and alkaline soil-tolerant flowering shrubs native to Eurasia and Africa, could be a potential source of alkali, along with the masticol plant. Tamarisk is also mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, when the goddess Ninsun, Gilgamesh's mother, bathes ceremoniously in a bath of tamarisk, and soapwort. The date palm, which contains a number of fatty acids in both the seed and the flesh of the fruit, could provide the second component needed to produce soap. So, again, mm. we're in the zone of possible soap here. Again, the chemistry <laughs> of soap is certainly possible before uh, that uh, date we gave earlier in the 3rd millennium BCE. It's just a matter of finding hard evidence for it, hard records of it that we can we can definitely point to. Um, plus, you know, it, it does make sense, as we've seen with the garlic. All origin idea, which, again, is much later in in human history, that the likely origin of soap might involve, you know, an adjacent area of health, hygiene, medicine or cosmetics in these examples. And you could well imagine it sort of being discovered, rediscovered uh, to to varying uh, degrees across different cultures. Uh, So... Uh, I want to read just this nice closing from Kunkel and Rasmussen. Quote, The slightly complicated process of rendering the fats and oils and combining it with alkali could not have been developed spontaneously. There must have been a series of steps or procedures that slowly evolved where each step resulted in a process useful enough to be adopted in its own right. One proposed sequence of development is that people use sand or ashes to remove the grease from skin. If they rinse the ashes off with water, the water and their skin would become Slippery, which was because of the dissolved alkali salts. This water would clean better because the dissolved alkali reacts with the grease, converting it into soap. The more grease that was, was dissolved in the solution, the better it cleans because more soap is formed. At some point, the ashes were discarded and the solution from leached ashes or concentrated alkali salts were used. That's a very plausible route
1: of development to me, that maybe first you just had the the oil as the contaminant itself. And then if you used ashes in the washing, it would naturally combine with the oils that you were trying to get off to make the mm-hmm. soap. Uh, and then, of course, that would wash off much more easily because it bonds with the water you're using to rinse. So, yeah, I can definitely see something like that. Maybe that, like, ashes from a fire pit are kind of the stepping stone.
2: Yeah. So uh, so, yeah, I, this is interesting to really sort of you know, peer back through history. And again, you don't have that wonderful aha moment where uh, where you suddenly have something accidentally produced. Instead, it's it's something that develops out of these um, these hygienic practices and rituals. You know, one of the funny things that I was just thinking
1: about is that. Throughout history, you would have had all of these uh, soap-making industries that were making use of rendered animal fats. Mm -hmm. And I would guess that a lot of the animal fats they were using were probably not the ones that were like – Still freshest and best for I don't know culinary uses or yeah. other uh, types of uses. So I can imagine that the process of making soap throughout history might often have been rather nasty and stinky work. Even yeah. though what you're making is ultimately the thing that that gets the that gets the rich butts clean.
2: <laughs> yeah, soap making does. Even knowing you know a little bit more about what goes into the into the sausages, it does have this air of. Um, a, a sort of chemical nobility to it, right? Uh, today, especially when you're dealing with with uh, with, with with craftspeople, right? And the yeah, artisanal soaps, artisanal so soaps, soaps, bespoke soaps, uh, and so uh, forth. Uh, but yeah, which I, which I made with rancid goat fat. <laughs> <laughs> Rancid goat fat is not used in the marketing enough. Uh, you know, I, I always think back to those uh, <laughs> Irish spring commercials from when I was a kid where it's like, you know, the, the manly Irish soap that is, uh, so appears to just spring forth from the earth. Uh uh-huh. It's like uh, some weird manna that flows out of the, uh, you know, the, the mountains uh, uh, in Ireland or something.
1: You know, soap's another thing we've talked before about, uh, we like products that get gendered marketing and products that don't. Oh um, yeah, and like, of course, soap is one of those that's so interesting. Like, you know, there's feminine soap and there's masculine soap, and like, why? I don't know. Yeah, I mean,
2: I mean, obviously, some soaps are are more. I guess um you know or more durable than others or more or harsher like I remember my my grandfather would always wash and lather up with lava soap, which was one that was definitely gendered, you know. Uh, but right. it was a, it was like a workman's. So I guess they, they probably still make it. I, I'm certainly not in the market for it. But it was a harsh and abrasive bar of soap. It was the it was the most masculine bar <laughs> soap imaginable.
1: This'll turn you into
2: leather. Yeah, it'll
1: make beef jerky out of your skin.
2: Yeah, to just rip your skin right off. Uh, and then of course you see with the Irish Spring. And there, I mean, there's I'm sure a plethora of different, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. Know, masculine soaps out there. Uh-huh. And then of course the reverse is true as well. You have some that yeah. have, uh, you know, that lots of floral tones and are definitely going uh, in the other direction. Uh I don't know, I'm more of the uh the, the gender neutral soap uh category. I like something uh you know, nice uh, and politely in between. <laughs>
1: So, uh, of course, it doesn't matter whether you use masculine soap or feminine soap or gender neutral soap. Uh, it's very important that whatever kind of soap you use, you wash your hands. And th- that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this episode today. Uh, Robert,
2: you discovered there's actually a global hand washing day. I didn't know about that. Yeah, this this was news to me. October 15th is Global Hand Washing Day, and uh, it was established by the Global Hand Washing Partnership in 2008. Uh, quote the observance aims to increase awareness and knowledge of the benefits of hand washing with soap. I have been going, uh, uh, you know, certainly since its inception. I have not noticed uh, this holiday. I have a feeling this October fifteenth uh, we might uh, give it a little more attention. Yeah, and and certainly uh, I, I do want to stress. If it's masculine soap, gender neutral soap, uh, you know, feminine soap, whatever, kids soap, grown up soap, use something you like. If it, if if it, if a certain branding or or fragrance or whatever uh, l- makes you like it more or makes your your child like it more, go for it. Uh, that's my take on it. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the Global Handwashing Day is coming up, and uh, I was looking into it, and I found some wonderful stats via the CDC uh, about just the, the benefits of handwashing, specifically the benefits of handwashing education within a given community. They point out that it can, first of all, reduce the number of people who get sick with diarrhea by about 23 to 40 percent. It can reduce absenteeism due to gastrointestinal illness in school children by 29 to 57 percent. It can reduce diarrheal illness in people with weakened immune systems by about 58 percent. And it can reduce respiratory illnesses like colds in the general population by about 16 to 21 percent. Yeah. Now, one thing that's highlighted here is that hand washing is going to have different levels
1: of effectiveness with different kinds of germs and diseases. Uh, I, I think one thing that we should probably be clear about is that I want to say based on everything I've been reading, the primary route of transmission, for example, of the novel coronavirus is going to be probably through droplets dispersed directly from other people onto you. So stuff that you would receive, you know, from people talking or breathing, coughing, sneezing in your presence, that's the primary route. But of course, we, we do think that a strong secondary route is, you know, contaminated surfaces and, and spreading through contact through the hands touching the face.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that's why, you know, hand washing alone is not enough. That's why... You know, early on in the pandemic uh, here in the United States, it was, there was like this, there were a few days, maybe even a week there, where like every business just went crazy with hand sanitizer and, and hand washing uh, um, uh, encouragement, you know, with just hand washing stations or, or um, hand sanitation uh, uh, stations everywhere. But then it be quickly became, you know, obvious that, that was, that's only the secondary transmission. A uh, primary transmission is going to be those droplets. Therefore, social distancing is necessary.
1: Exactly right. Uh, but, of course, you can see with many other diseases, especially a lot of diseases, I think, that affect the digestive system, like diarrheal diseases, have a very strong component of, uh, of you know, contamination delivered through the hands to the mouth, all these fecal-oral route diseases and stuff.
2: Yeah, so even outside of COVID-19, there are plenty of fringe benefits uh, to—and uh, additional, uh, you know, benefits to doing all that hand washing. Uh, I, f- I found this interesting. I imagine uh, other folks uh, heard about this as well— uh, <laughs> But, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, an individual everyone you know is seeing a lot about uh, week after week. Uh, he was talking to the Wall Street Journal's podcast about this uh, uh, and uh, he said uh, he's talking about like what happens when we we sort of begin to emerge from our our current um, you know, social distancing and uh, and shelter in place uh, um, requirements. He said, "Quote: When you gradually come back, you don't jump in with both feet. You say, what are the things you could still do and still approach normal? And one of them is absolute compulsive hand washing." The other is you don't shake anyone's hands. I don't yes. think we should ever shake hands ever again, to be honest with you. Not yes. only would it be good to prevent coronavirus disease, it, would prob- it probably would decrease instances of <laughs> influenza dramatically in this country. But how will this be received by the people who just
1: love shaking hands? I say as a joke because I assume nobody does. I mean, I guess some people actually probably do enjoy it. I mean, I don't know. Does anybody accept like the certain kinds of people who like to play some weird dominance game about it? Does anybody else enjoy it? I mean, it's
2: literally just a friendly greeting. Words are great. Yeah and uh, and uh, like I was thinking a little bit about this myself because certainly the handshakes that I remember are like the big dominant like hand crushing handshakes you encounter and also mm. the awkward like dead fish handshakes yeah, uh, and and even like a normal handshake is at least for me kind of awkward. But I I think part of it is like you think about yeah you know, when do you hand shake hands and when do you not? We tend not to shake hands with our closest friends and coworkers, etc. It's like new people, uh, and that's part of why. I mean that that flows right into to uh, Dr. Fauci's advice here. But uh, I guess the other thing is we're often talking about kind of like business handshakes uh, and that that level of stranger handshake uh but then there are also the sort of handshakes that often take place in say uh, a, a communal church environment so my mm. initial response was yes i hate business handshakes but then i had to think well how about handshakes that take place, place during like the passing of peace in a oh, church sure. setting okay like those those are okay those are nice i i like those that being said uh I'm happy to leave those behind and do something else instead. We can do the elbow bump thing. We can nod to each other. There are tons of things we can do and still have that communal experience. I want to see
1: churches pass the peace with a fist bump because I was just looking at a study from the American Journal of Infection Control in 2014 by Sarah Miller and David E. Whitworth called The Fist Bump, A More Hygienic (laughs) Alternative to the Handshake. They actually studied how much, uh, like what percentage of germs were spread by handshakes versus other types of greetings, including a high five and a fist bump. And what they found was that, quote, nearly twice as, many bacteria were transferred during a handshake and the mean here was uh, 1.24 times 10 to the 8 CFU uh, that's uh, CFU means colony forming units compared with a high five whereas the fist bump consistently gave the lowest transmission so I think if you must touch fist bump instead of handshake especially don't do prolonged handshakes um, this is uh, the, they measured that a strong handshake quote or a prolonged handshake uh, is even worse than a moderate handshake.
2: So, like those ridiculously long handshakes that um, uh, that you sometimes see the U.S. president engage in, where like nobody's letting go, like where it's like a test of the <laughs> test of will. That's just a a, 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 a natural or way to to pass on uh, uh, various ailments.
1: Or or like the ones uh, – I think – aren't there some of these in like action movies, like in Arnold Schwarzenegger movies? Like the beginning of Predator,
2: oh, where yeah, Arnold the Schwarzenegger big. and Carl mm-hmm.
1: Weathers are just like holding hands for several minutes.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an iconic scene. It's just so raw, the big muscles and all. But, uh-huh. uh, but yeah, not a good idea. But they both had diarrhea for a week <laughs> after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably just that was that they probably were already having it. They were in the in, uh, the jungle uh, scenario, right? Uh, yeah. Living off the the, the land. Now, uh, uh, I did notice that they point out a difference between fist bump and prolonged fist bump. So it's like a, I wonder is a prolonged fist bump going to be more like the snail or some of these. It, these, uh, you know, these variations on the fist bump or or and then also uh, uh, where does are they blowing it up at all? Or is there are they doing the hand grenade? Uh, so many questions. I would,
1: I, would, I would imagine the blowing it up is pretty safe. I don't think any germs are transferred during blowing it up.
2: Yeah. As long as it blows up quickly. Maybe that's the great thing about it. The, the blowing it up is a way to remind ourselves that we've got to keep this brief because this hand grenade is about to go off. <laughs> Well, I, I will say uh, my personal prejudice against
1: handshaking aside, uh, if you're going to be shaking hands, make sure you wash your hands a lot. Wash your hands before, wash your hands after.
2: Yeah. And and use soap. Yes. Use soap. Yeah, because soap, again, is a fabulous human chemical invention. Uh, it has a, a very long history, a very fascinating history. Uh, so hopefully you'll all think this is something you can think about during those uh, 20 plus seconds that you wash your hands. Totally. All right. So we're going to go ahead and close it up there. Um, you know, obviously, there's there's more we could have gone into and, in, you know, in terms of certainly the more recent history of soap uh, uh, and uh, and so forth. But but really, I think the the ancient history here and just the basic uh, a basic understanding of how soap works were the most important things to focus in on. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to uh, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That will lead you over to the iHeart listing for this show. But you can also find Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you get your podcasts, wherever that happens to be. Just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, at least for the immediate future, we're planning to continue doing invention-themed episodes on a periodic basis. So I don't think that's going to be—it's no, not going to be weekly, but uh, you know, its I think it's going to at least be monthly that's my my gut there's no real uh you know firm uh, schedule in place on that but we love covering inventions we love covering human techno history so we will continue to do so
1: we'll do it when we feel like it and we feel like it an awful lot i'd say yeah Anyway, huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your
0: Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.
0: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen.